I don't think it's a really strange thing to say that this is among my favorite episodes across all of Deep Space Nine ever. Uh, this is one of those episodes that I automatically comes to mind when I think favorite, you know, Star Trek, favorite Deep Space Nine, etc. <clears throat> and it's funny because I've actually rewatched the last about ten or so minutes of this episode several times just because I felt like it. But is the episode actually that good? Is the whole thing that good? Because one good scene in an, in an episode or a movie does not make the whole thing good. Same with a video game, right? This could just be me basically reinforcing my own prejudice towards the episode. Well, let me go ahead and reassure you that, no, the whole episode is actually really, really good. Um, this episode is an excellent example of what I am tentatively going to start calling the Babylon 5 effect. I don't remember if I have a lorium up for that or not. The idea is, when you have an entire story written out before you put your first pen to paper, you can put bits and details in there that aren't just foreshadowing, but that are things that look or are perceived one way, but then when you review them, knowing all the facts of the situation, they can be perceived a completely different way. And that changes what you're seeing, the dynamic of the episode or the game or whatever. So named because of, well, because of Babylon 5 pretty much in its entirety, uh, at least to season 4. And as I was going back through this episode, there was a decent amount of Maritz's performance that very clearly was highlighting this. In fact, I'd say it's most telling that when we get to the the big conclusion, the big finale, and, and the all the truths are revealed and all the lies are, are laid bare, she deduces the actual correct truth from him very quickly and easily because he wasn't really hiding it that well. But I digress. Um, we'll talk more about that when we get there. This is an interesting episode because, of, of course, it's a very character-centric episode, and anybody who knows me knows that of the six points of story character is by far the biggest thing for me. It's, it's, it's my candy. I eat it up. I love good character pieces. It's one of the reasons why I tend to prefer Mass Effect 2 to Mass Effect 1, even though Mass Effect 1 did a lot better overall in, in terms of a game or even a plot, because Mass Effect 2 was so wonderfully character-centric. Make sense? <clears throat> so here we have a bottle show, because they were running out of money and they needed to do a couple of special effects shots for the season finale next week. Although, they were originally going to do something different with that, so they kind of saved some of this money for something that didn't come to fruition, so... Whatever. We'll cover that when we get to that next week, uh, when we start talking about that. But what I want to talk about right now is the very nature of a bottle show. Uh, the, the entire purpose of a bottle show is an episode that saves money. That, that's really what a bottle show actually means. We have what is effectively one real guest star. We actually have a grand total of three guest stars and one recurring star. So, not super expensive. And we have no real special effects shots in this episode. Just a couple of force field bits, which is very easy. Makeup job for, again, you know, the Cardassians and the Bajorans. And all pre-existing sets. No location shoots, no new set design. So in other words, the overall cost of this episode was very, very low. I always find it interesting that a lot of my favorite episodes across all of Star Trek tend to be bottle shows. I don't know if that's really deliberate or not. 
But I, I have noticed that in some cases, because obviously this isn't always true, in some cases when Star Trek's creators have to make a bottle show for budget reasons, they sit down and say, all right, let's do a very, really strong character piece, or let's do a strong theme piece, or let's analyze this concept. Because what else are you going to do, right? They can't do flashy, they can't do ray guns and explosions, so they do what they can. So we see in this episode what is arguably our first actual look at the occupation. They've talked about it before, I've talked about it before, but a lot of the information on the exact levels and nature of the brutality and the violence and the everything horrible about it is really starting to be talked about here. Kira gives a wonderfully impassioned speech on the nature of what these people were going through at Galatep, or, yeah, Galatep, and all of the methodology the Cardassians were utilizing at the time. That's probably the most neutral way I can put that, because if I say anything else, I might start throwing up in my mouth a little bit. They don't hold back in their description of this, and credit to Nana Visitor. She basically works herself up to a fever pitch as she's delivering this diatribe, and then actually has to cut herself off because her voice starts to break. Good presentation. That is, a, that is a, probably the best way without going the quiet route. There's basically the quiet route and the loud route. It's probably the, one of the best ways to do the loud route to get across this kind of information. This episode's also interesting because it presents three levels of hatred for Maritza. I'm kind of skipping forward a little bit in my notes here. Uh, Kira's is obviously very personal. She, the individual, saw the individuals at the camp that she liberated. Very personal stake in things. Then we have the government, the provisional government, and trust me, we'll be talking about them for the next like four episodes at this point. It's going to pretty much become the main plot, plot line of the series for a little bit here. But anyways, the provisional government's hatred is effectively a little bit more on the political side, as weird as that may sound, because Cardassians are basically enemies of the state. This is one of those situations where even if they had actually executed this man and then found out he was actually innocent, they would probably just respond with a shrug. I mean, he's a Cardassian. Who cares, right? Nobody really mourns if you take down the enemy of the state, which is a funny perspective when you consider the Cardassian mentality, which we will talk about in the future. But then we see the most senseless hatred of all in this episode. Uh, he's actually given a name in the script. I can't remember his name right now. Forgive me. It's Random Drunk Guy. He only has like three scenes in the whole episode. And Random Drunk Guy, which is what I'm going to call him now, his hatred is just basic random hatred. There's someone who looks like a group of people I don't like. It's actually very basic, very simplistic tribal mentality, or what I like to think of as the line. I am on this side of the line. You're on that side of the line. Sucks to be you. Now, I'm not saying, let me make this clear. I want to make this very, very clear. I am not saying that there is not a level of understanding and sympathy that can be had for the Bajorans and the monstrosities that they went through. Again, Kira does a pretty good job of presenting that at the early part of this episode. But I am also the kind of person who has to acknowledge the... the fallacy, I don't know what else to call it, of automatically assuming that everyone who is like the people who hurt you is the people that hurt you. Because that's what he does. This is You could call it speciesism, but again, it, it's just line mentality. I'm, you're on the other side of the line. He doesn't need anything else to hate him. He even flat out says, let me know when they hang him. 
just so he can watch because it's a Cardassian. Anyways, we'll talk more about that towards the end. So Kira flat out admits she is not objective, which is interesting because in a proceeding with desire towards justice, objectivity is arguably one of the most important precepts. This is the thing that can be debated. I'm not trying to lay down the law on this one, but there are many people and many mindsets, I should say, that agree with this concept, that as objective as is possible, as distanced as it is possible from the source material is what is helpful. There's a reason there's that whole, um, oh, what's it called, where there's a, oh, I can't think of it, when, when there's a conflict of interest, there we go, when there's a conflict of interest situation going on, why that's usually considered to be a bad thing. And Kira has conflict of interest written all over her face. What I find interesting is she acknowledges that and says, I still want to do this for them. I still want to do this the right way. This is a very, very strong Kira-centric episode, and she does a lot of growing in this episode because we see someone who is smart enough to not be like angry drunk guy. She is. She is intelligent enough to acknowledge that this line thing, well, it's nice and simple and easy to look at that. And she even wants that. She just wants to, to get back to that, but she can't. Her mind, her conscience, whatever you want to call it, is looking at it and saying, that's not right. I can't just hate him because he's a Cardassian. I want to. God, I want to. We see this war between Kira's emotions and Kira's intellect throughout the course of this episode. And there are a lot of scenes that really help portray that like the scene where she sits down with Sisko and Pratout says, please put me on this, I need to do this. Or the scene where she talks with Dax, I want him to be guilty, I want him to be a monster. And all of her scenes with Maritza, which are just gold, by the way. It really says something when the best scenes, in my opinion, in all of season one of, T of, of DS9, excuse me, are two people acting in a closed set, in a frickin' jail cell, for God's sakes. That's that's powerful stuff. <sighs> he has an interesting method of allowing this series of things to happen. I wrote down some things on the left, which I'll cover in just a second, but you'll notice that when he starts to... Like, initially, he's basically faux-pretending. You know what I mean, right? It's when you're lying but you have no real intention of being believed in the lie. Now, what sells this, what makes this brilliant, is that several of the things he's saying are, in fact, the truth. And he peppers his lies initially with those little tidbits of truth. He does this to help center himself. He does this to help make his lies more believable. If I tell you, I don't know how to... I can't think of an example, but you know, if I say truth, 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 lie, and my objective is to get you to believe this one, you're more likely to because I prefaced it with truth, 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 right? Now, of course, it doesn't actually work that way, but you can see how the psychology of that would work. And you'll notice every time he starts to dig into the lie, his demeanor actually changes. Like, he's, he's just barely holding himself together, and he's just kind of almost mundane, and he looks like he's about to break down crying, actually, at almost any moment, or shaking, or just... He looks like he's in shock. And, and God, absolute credit to the actor. Oh, God, uh, Harris... Uh, Harris Eulen. 
who was a, who was a magnificent stage director uh, and a magnificent actor on, in theatrical works as well as dozens of other uh, works. I'm sure you've seen him somewhere. He he absolutely nails this role because he puts a lot of subtlety. Watch his watch his eyes, watch his face as he's like, and then he starts the lie. Like he's and he starts the lie and he starts to get into it. Now this is brilliant because this is what real life actors tend to do. And I can speak from experience because this is a technique that was taught to me when I started really getting into theater back when I was in school. You embrace the role and you stop thinking about the hesitation. You stop thinking about what's my next line. You stop thinking about where's my next beat, you know, where's my next uh, marking on the stage? Where am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to be looking at? Am I projecting correctly? You just embrace the role and you basically there's no better way to say it. You start acting it. You throw yourself into it, and all of that hesitation kind of falls away because you're not really thinking about that anymore. You're thinking about Goldarheel and what he would say next. And so sometimes, even if you flub a line, you're in the role, so you can still say what your character would say in the next bit, right? So it's, it's actually a brilliant presentation of stage and theatrical acting being done in character by a stage and theatrical actor. It's a nice little uh, thing there. So again, watch him, watch his eyes. Um, and then he has that great line where he says, all you want is vengeance. And she has no actual answer to that. She can't respond to that. This episode actually uses that word a lot, and I like that because I personally, and most people I know don't really make this distinction, like to divvy up uh, retaliation into three categories. Justice which is basically a one-to-one -one trying to make things right. Revenge, which is trying to, make, to recompense a negative with another negative. And vengeance, which I probably don't even need to define for you. A, a vengeance is, screw you. You hurt me, so I'm going to burn your village down. You know, that's vengeance, right? Of course she wants vengeance. She wants to be free to have that vengeance. I find myself wondering if it was a, a frankly weaker woman than Kira, a weaker person than Kira, that if they would have just pursued this and, well, Maritza's plan would have succeeded. Although, I'll talk more about that in a minute. So, I'm looking at my notes here, and I, sh I tossed some things down here. Uh, things that were a little more interesting the second time viewing. Obviously, this is more like my 15th time viewing. I love this episode, but the scene where Maritza runs away is... I heard something. Is a great scene. Uh, it, it presents this, like, oh no, I need to get away, except he's obviously not trying in any way, shape, or form. What he's doing is he's ensuring that the local constabulary presumes his guilt. While this isn't always true, and I don't want to get into real-life politics, if you have some kind of order official, whether it's a guard or a cop or a constable or whatever, if they walk up and you're just sitting there, they're a lot more likely to be reasonable and talk it through with you than if you run. Because if you run, it is more logical to assume that you are automatically guilty of one thing or another. Now, that's not actually true. You're not actually more likely to be guilty if you run. And in fact, I, I could cite references on this one, but I'm just going to quote Babylon 5, the innocent run, because they don't want to be found, they don't want to be caught up in the mess, 
forgive me for paraphrasing the quote, I forget the exact word, boys. But the point being, he does his little run away so that they catch him. So they toss him into a jail cell without charging him of anything. Notice that he is deliberately evasive early on. I kind of already mentioned this, but he does this whole ha-ha, I'm lying, ha-ha thing almost deliberately to provoke them. There's no denying that he was setting this up. And he also immediately identifies Kira as the person who is to be his executor. Not literally the person who puts their finger on the phaser or whatever, but the one who is going to bring him to vengeance. And he starts engaging with her pretty much immediately as soon as he identifies that fact. Then there's this wonderful little bit. I, I'm, I'm just kind of trying to do these in order, forgive me, but there's this bit where she asks him about the atrocities. You know, did you not see the corpses? And he says this line, we all did. And he says it just a little bit under his breath and a little bit just... And just for one moment, you see Maritza. And then he immediately starts right back into his diatribe. No, no, there were no atrocities. I mean, yes, it was a labor camp. Things were harsh, blah, 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 blah. And he basically tries to bluster his way out of that. But you notice that initial thing, you know, we all did. That stings. You can just see it. <clears throat> and when he finally starts revealing the whole I am Darheel Dar thing, Gul Darheel, you'll notice he embraces the, for lack of a better term, insanity of the role. You know, oh, my men came back covered in blood. I told my men to kill, but you're scum. And they came back covered in blood. But they were clean. They felt clean because they were clean. You know, he embraces that. Now, I could discuss that one aspect of this episode for some time. I'm not going to bore you with that. I am going to say that it ties into Maritz's motivations. And it makes you wonder what kind of a man Goldarheel actually was. Because we never know. We will never find out. The only information that we have is from Gold Dukat, which is extremely third-party, and Maritza, who saw him as a monster. An absolutely insane, megalomaniacal monster. I wonder what kind of person he actually was. I'll talk more about that in a bit. So, he actually... There are several times... When he is approached about his own lies, his lies about being Goldar Heel, not the other ones, where he, he reacts, basically his strategy for being caught in a lie is different than the previous times. Most of the time, when he was caught in a lie about being Maritza, he would pretty much lay out a breadcrumb trail verbally and visually saying, Oh, I am lying. When he's approached the other way, he, he does something completely different. He buys for time. Ha, 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 yes, you've caught me in a lie, you say. That's ridiculous. And what he's doing is he's giving his t his, himself time to process, like, okay, what do I say here? Ah, I've got it. And then he gives a very casual answer, which doesn't actually answer the question, and then immediately misdirects, immediately tries to provoke the emotional response again. And it's funny because Kira doesn't actually buy into that. She catches him on that more than once. And then there's the bit where he says, you know, I have my questions for you. And what I really find interesting about that is that also ties into his motivations, which we don't really know. It's worth noting. But he asks to talk with Kira personally, one-on-one. -on -one. My interpretation? He wanted to know. He wanted to know through the personal eyes and experience of someone else who saw the other side what the other side actually was like. What it was like to, to show up and see your own people being butchered and worse. 
I think that steeled his resolve to walk to death, to be willing to die for this cause, if you could even call it such a thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's also this uh, very brief scene, which I need to mention this, where there's this uh, Bajoran engineering chief who helps out O'Brien named Leela, and for some reason she doesn't have a center eye. I'm not sure why that is. Her hair is the wrong color, too, but you know, just mentioning her very quickly. Um, Ducat, we see a bit of him in this episode, and it's interesting because he is, by contrast, a much worse liar than Maritza is. He basically has this, this pompous facade that he maintains until the moment you say something unexpected. It just crumbles, like, wait, what? Huh? That can't be right. Oh, uh, let, me, let me pull up the facade here again really quick. It's actually kind of funny. But we do see one interesting thing about Ducat, and that is his patriotism. I just want you to remember that for the future. Um, it's actually funny. When Kira goes in there, and confronts him for being Darheel. My God, she looks so relieved. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Prophets. I have a villain. I have someone I can oppose. This is something I understand. This is something I wanted. I want someone to hurt. I want someone to torture and beat and brutalize. I want someone to kill. To try and make it up to all of the suffering. Because, I mean, I have to do something. I have to be useful. I have to make myself useful for the dead, to give some, she even says it flat out, I want to give some satisfaction to Pejorans. And yet her own mind, as I've already mentioned, constantly tells her, this, is, this isn't how this is going to work out. This isn't going to accomplish it. In fact, I find myself wondering if she wouldn't have been so emotionally charged if he didn't keep feeding into that. Now, why does he keep feeding into that? Well, I mentioned earlier that as soon as she gets the final crucial bits of information, she sees through him instantly and without his hesitation. And you know why? Because she's thinking. She's no longer approaching this with the emotional perspective. That charge in the back of her brain that's just... is gone. And she puts the piece, pieces together very quickly and very easily. He kept her emotionally charged so that she'd never see through it. So that no one would. Like I said, he identified her as the executor, or the executor, if you prefer. What I like about this episode is the first 27 minutes is basically a completely typical Star Trek episode. It is the last uh, 19 or whatever, I forget the exact number, that is when this episode really starts to shine. Because it's like, well, hang on a second. He let one thing slip. It's funny, if he hadn't let that one thing slip, he might have succeeded. And I'd like to segue for just a moment. What do you think would have happened if they had ex executed Maritza? Keep in mind, this could really seriously sour things in many ways, politically. This is already a very politically charged scenario. The Bajoran, <laughs> I hesitate to even call it a government. It's, it's basically, we've got the Bajoran Vedics. Uh, uh, the Bajoran Provisional Government, they probably have a military somewhere. Yeah, that, that's going to be mentioned uh, in Season 2. So yeah, they've got a military. And that's kind of it. <laughs> I mean, the Provisional Government is called that for a reason, for God's sakes. The Bajoran Government being totally okay with this is totally okay with this because most of the people who are currently in charge are people who have personally watched Cardassians do horrible, horrible things and are willing to think of things in terms of line mentality. So they didn't give a crap. 
They probably wouldn't even apologize. Oh, sorry, we killed innocent. Whatever. What do you think it's going to do to the Federation's perspective on this? Do you think the Federation would consider this a significant reason to just pull out of Bajor? I'm not actually sure. What do you think the Union would think of this, the Cardassian Union? Because we know how strongly they think of their own personage, how, how much they care about you know, the, the rights of... And, and they would hold the Federation responsible for this particular action. Do you think they would admit their crimes as Maritza wanted? No, of course not. As we'll find out in, I think, uh, in a few episodes from now, uh, the Cardassians are totally okay with violating their own treaties as long as they think they can get away with it. That's not the issue. One of the things I like as they're putting together the, the evidence towards the end of the episode is that the evidence is so off. Like, it all points to this not being what it seems to be, but no one can, fi can figure out why. The reason why is because nobody can deduce the motive. Okay, well, if he's not Goldarheel, why would he present himself as one? That's insane. He could only do that if he was trying to get caught and killed. But that's such a non-motive that people don't look at it like that. So everyone involved, Cisco and Bashir and Odo and Kira, are all trying to figure out some kind of motive for this, and they can't. How could you possibly deduce such a perspective like this? From the 37-minute mark onward, it's just pure gold. And I've rewatched those those scenes many, many times. When she starts really confronting him... I, I, I almost just want to play the scene for you, because it's just... it's perfect. When she starts really confronting him... He breaks down completely. All of his attempts to lie and misdirect fail utterly. He can't even provoke. He tries. He tries to provoke her. That doesn't work. He tries to misdirect. That doesn't work. He tries to just shut down the conversation. But again, the emotional charge is gone now. We have Kira the thinker, and she just sees right through him. You're Maritza. There are two last things I want to talk about in this episode. <sighs> Actually, I guess four, but whatever. The first thing I want to talk about is the crime of the Cardassian Union. This is the reality that has been true in many aspects of real life, as well as in fiction. It's hard to properly describe because it's actually kind of insane when you think about it. The idea is that while we like to have one individual or even a small group of individuals who are evil and who perpetrate evil, what usually happens is we have a system that creates evil. This is the Cardassian Union. In the Cardassian Union, we have crafted people. We have crafted victims, like all those people who were brutalized at uh, Galatap. We have crafted the survivors of those, like the people who journeyed to, to be outside his door, or like Kira herself, who helped to, to salvage and, and rescue the situation. We have the Union crafting people like Goldar Heel, which, you know, even if he wasn't this megalomaniacal, insane person, was evil by all accounts. It crafts people like Gold Dukat, 
who refuse to see in their blindness of loyalty the crimes of their own state. Remember, within even just this episode, I'm not even talking about the future, which we will discuss. There's a lot to talk about Guldicott in this series and the Cardassian Union. But we see just in this episode, if he says he is Maritza, then he's Maritza. There's no reason to question this. Why would a Cardassian lie about their identity in this matter? No, he says he's Goldar Hill. And then that just breaks Ducat's brain. And of course, the Cardassian Union crafts people like Maritza. Broken men and women who have no real capacity to deal with anything that they are forced to be present to or that they are forced to do to others. <clears throat> I've talked many times about how going through the same type of circumstances will make certain people come out of it in different ways. What we see here is an example of this, a very good example of this, actually, because we see that some people, while forced to do horrible acts, will become monsters. And some people, while forced to do horrible acts, will become cowards. And some will become heroes. Moritz's final breakdown, as he finally admits the horrors of the screams, is such a touching moment that it brings me to tears literally every time I see it. I can't help it. I, I, I can't help but feel the victimization and the tragedy of this scenario, that a system has crafted this monster-creating abomination in the occupation. It's, it's hard to properly wrap my mind around it. The true crime of the Cardassian Union is that it destroys its own people just as much as it destroys everyone else's. That it, if we were to, to really take ourselves out of this, to remove the line entirely, no species, no flags, no family bindings, no species bindings, if we were to look at us as a people... What organizations like the Cardassian Union do is ruin people. And that is unacceptable. Let's talk about Moritz's motives. Why do you think he did this? As ever, I love reading your guys' comments. I would very much enjoy hearing what you guys have to say about this. Why did Moritz do this? Now, I've heard two most common theories discussed. One is that he was insane, that he, was, that he just lost it, couldn't take the guilt, couldn't take the pressure anymore, and he just flipped his lid and decided to go and do what he had to do in order to just, to, just, just to end it. It has to end, it has to end. And he has this line which I wrote down, we're all guilty, all of us. We must be punished. We all have to be punished. That kind of lends credence to that idea. The other major theory I've heard is that this was a deliberate intent, like a, a carefully planned scheme by a broken man desperate to accomplish something in order to make up, in order to have justice for what happened. And that's the interesting one. I, I do like that perspective, because he doesn't want vengeance like Kira did. He wants some degree of justice. He wants to drag the Cardassian Union's crimes into the light and say, look, look at what this did. Look at what this made. This is not right. This needs to be fixed. This needs to be better going forward. It is also possible that this is just 
a desperate and broken man who is not insane and is not a planner, that he was just doing the only thing he could think to do as a coward. I would, as ever, absolutely adore hearing your guys' thoughts on this. This is a great episode. I love this episode so much. I wish I had more to talk about, more to say, but ultimately I really feel that a lot of this episode speaks for itself. It's also funny, the name of it, Duet. You, you, know, you need both. Without both Kira and Maritza, this episode wouldn't function. You need both sides of that perspective. And the fact that Kira is willing to end what is referred to as the cycle of hatred for a reason. Because the cycle of hatred is self-perpetuating. She, she, the only way cycles of hatred like this end is if someone decides without cause to stop. Without reason to stop. And if you'll notice, this isn't really spoilers, but in, in her interactions with Cardassians going forward in general, she has kind of let go of that particular poison in her soul. She's not willing to forgive and forget the actual crimes. She's not willing to buddy-buddy with Cardassians. But she no longer hates Cardassians because they're Cardassians. She starts thinking of them as people. And I think that really all came down to this and the one man who saved her from that perspective. Which brings me to his passing. I wonder what the man Maritza could have accomplished had he lived. I really do. I would love to hear anybody's theory crafting on that one. His death is a senseless, meaningless tragedy, and that is the point. This is a tragedy. This whole situation. He is not killed for political expediency. He is not killed to cover up the truth. He is not killed by one of those survivors of the camp he worked at. He does not kill himself. Kira does not kill him. No, it's just some random guy who isn't even given a name in the episode proper who killed him because he was a Cardassian and for no other reason. I don't know if there's anything that I can truly add to that. I do hope you've enjoyed my discussions on one of my favorite episodes of Deep Space Nine. And I hope to see you guys next time.